0: Every year, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists announces the current time on the Doomsday Clock, which represents humanity's proximity to its own annihilation. Currently, it is set at two minutes to midnight. So when the head of the Bulletin explains what's behind the ever-narrowing margin between current life and planetary death, moving from three minutes in 2016... Our 2017 statement...
1: Really focused on a disregard for science and a recklessness around language, around nuclear diplomacy, that we felt was very dangerous. We moved it a half a minute, and then this past year, we
0: finished the minute. And where does it go from here? That's what we're about to find out. Because when you hear from the world's top atomic scientists that we are only two minutes away from ultimate planetary midnight you know that you are in the seat we all share. Nuclear Hot Seat What are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat What
1: have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat The corium is sinking Our time to act
0: is shrinking But our activists are linking! Nuclear Hot Seat get it wrong. This week, we talk with Rachel Bronson. She is the President and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, best known as the organization behind the Doomsday Clock, now recognized as the international symbol of how close humankind is to destroying itself. Where did that image come from? Who gets to decide where to set the time? And what criteria are used to determine this symbolic warning? We'll be learning all about that and much more. We'll also have numnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shout-outs, and more honest nuclear information than former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson will be sharing during his exit interviews. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 13, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant in Plymouth, Massachusetts, at the foot of Cape Cod, was the subject of last week's Numbnuts of the Week for not having been shut down during the massive storm, the first of three, to hit the East Coast. But the day after the first storm cleared, Pilgrim operators shut it down because of a possible leak in the system that provides it with hot water. This may be related to a defective part that was shipped by Crane Nuclear Incorporated, a valve that was found to be defective and shipped to Pilgrim, Cooper, Browns Ferry, and Brunswick reactors. Pilgrim remains shut down and disconnected from the power grid based on the location of the suspected leak. Good thing because another storm is coming. At Hanford... A new report released by contractor CH2M Hill Plateau Remediation Co. has found that during demolition of the nuclear reservation's highly contaminated plutonium finishing plant, the primary radioactive air monitors used were not up to the job. Then, when the spread of contamination was detected, the steps taken to contain it didn't fully work. Radioactive particles were found well beyond the demolition zones where they were supposed to be contained. They spread across Hanford streets, were found at other Hanford projects, and, in air samples collected over months, were detected near areas where the public is allowed. At least 11 Hanford workers checked since mid-December, inhaled or ingested what is being labeled small amounts of radioactive particles, with the knowledge that no amount of radiation is so small as to be considered safe. In addition, private and government vehicles were contaminated with radioactive particles and some were driven into the Tri-Cities area. It is believed by some that the monitors did not detect airborne contamination in December because some of the particles that spread were too heavy to stay aloft, meaning they were larger. Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge called for more independent analysis and said, One thing is clear, production overrode safety once again at Hanford. In Japan, a comprehensive survey by Greenpeace Japan in the towns of Itate and Namie in Fukushima Prefecture, including the exclusion zone, revealed radiation levels up to 100 times higher than the international limit for public exposure. The high radiation levels in those areas pose a significant risk to returning evacuees until at least the 2050s, 2050s, and well into the next century. And now, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, num nuts of the week. Ah, uh, TEPCO, is there no end to your num nutsery? Fukushima's power operator is now hoping to double the number of visitors to its tsunami-ravaged facilities by 2020 and is seeking to use the Olympic spotlight to clean up the region's image. Not the region, just the image. They're accepting requests for tours of the radioactive area from groups of local residents. Oh, just what they need, more radiation. Embassy officials and school students. Children are more vulnerable to radiation than adults. It is not, however, accepting requests from individuals possibly because one of them might turn out to be me. According to Takahiro Kimoto, a TEPCO official, our objective is not to send a message saying it's safe, it's secure. It's more important for us to have people watch what's really going on without a prejudiced eye. The inspections will help revitalize the region and reduce reputational damage. Reputational damage, not environmental human genetic DNA damage despite the fact that they admit that levels of radiation in areas around the three melted-down reactors remain extremely high, Fukushima will stage Olympic baseball and softball matches as part of Japan's effort to regenerate the area. But Daisuke Hirose, a plant official, said, as the initial stages of decommissioning the plant draw to a close, the biggest challenge is a protracted battle against high radiation. And yet, TEPCO is planning to double the number of visitors to the site to 20,000 by 2020. Isn't that alliterative? Isn't that numbnuts? And that's why TEPCO, yet again for a record-breaking number of times, you are this week's... Nuclear hot seat, numbnuts out of the way! We will link to the story about the Nagasaki bomb survivor who visited the Hanford site, which is where the plutonium that made the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was made. Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un say that they are willing to talk with each other. We'll see if that happens. Luxembourg is joining Austria in suing the EU over a nuclear plant in Hungary, and seaweed forced the shutdown of the Torness nuclear plant in Scotland. The Ocean's Revenge. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, seven years after the start of the nuclear disaster, the people of Fukushima don't have a lot of outlets to share the truth of what's happening to them. Nuclear Hot Seat is one of the few. Every week, 52 weeks a year, we present programs filled with verifiable news and unique interviews on Fukushima and every other aspect of the nuclear issue we can find, be it coming from the U.S., Japan, India, Canada, Australia, the EU, U.K., or anywhere else. Because nuclear problems encircle our precious globe, and no one is immune to the consequences. That's why you need to know the nuclear news. And that's why Nuclear Hot Seat comes your way every week. We don't take ads, we have no underwriting, We are supported exclusively by the generosity of listeners like you. So please, take a moment to help us out so that we can keep bringing you verifiable nuclear information. You can make a donation of any size by going to nuclearhotseat.com and clicking on the big red donate button. You can use that same button to set up a recurring donation that will support us on a monthly basis. And for an easy and way to help us meet our expenses, consider what we call the Starbucks donation. No, it doesn't go to that corporation. It's that you buy the show an equivalent of a cup of coffee every month. We have everything set up for you to send us a $5 monthly donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big green donate button. Your support now and throughout the year will help us keep bringing you the best, most up-to-date, and thoroughly footnoted information on what's going on with nuclear issues around the world. So, thank you for listening, thank you for caring, and know that whatever you can do to help us grow in our reach to the rest of the world, you have my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is the group that, every year, unveils the time on the Doomsday Clock to let us know how close humanity is to utterly destroying itself. We are currently at two minutes to endgame, the closest we have ever been. So what and who is behind this harbinger of doom? And how serious are the current threats? That's why I spoke with Rachel Bronson. She is the president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and she helps us learn about the organization, its mission, and that darned clock. Rachel Bronson, it is so good to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with an explanation of what exactly the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is.
1: So the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is a 70-year-old organization located in Chicago on the campus of the University of Chicago. And what we do is we publish a journal and a website that is updated daily that focuses on existential risk. What we're really interested in is science and technology and that those advancements and how to make sure that they are used for the benefit of mankind and we protect ourselves against the risks they bring.
0: When was the Bulletin founded By whom, and what was their motivation?
1: The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was founded in 1945 by Manhattan Project scientists, many of them who had worked with Fermi uh, on the first sustained nuclear chain reaction here at the University of Chicago. Some of them went off to Los Alamos, some stayed here, but they were all involved in the science of the time. They were also very aware because of that, that the world as they knew it had changed. And that weapons had the potential to wipe out large numbers of people, and they could see at the time had the potential to really end life on Earth as we know it. And so they came together in the beginning, and we can talk about that, but their origins were here in Chicago in 1945.
0: There were several references on the website to the fact that the Manhattan Project scientists felt that they could not remain aloof to the consequences of their work. And then they put forth both technical and humanist arguments for the abolition of nuclear weapons. Tell us about what was behind their push and what were the emotions that were perhaps involved that motivated them?
1: It was a really fascinating time. The scientists who were working here, you know, had been at it in 1942, they had worked with Fermi, they understood that the, their scientific breakthroughs around um, the atom could be weaponized and it moved, that process moved to Los Alamos. But they were very active here and very concerned about what the politics of managing it would be and they became increasingly concerned when it seemed that the bomb would be used that it would be used against Japan and not Germany, that it would be dropped potentially on civilian populations, not as a demonstration effect, um, all those things. And so they came together very soon after. If you if you think of the timing of this in July of 1945, we got the first atomic bomb tests here in the United States. And by August of 1945, The United States drops two nuclear weapons or atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. By November of 1945, so just a few months later, three months later, the scientists who had been talking about these issues, scientists like Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein, but also the folks here working, um, they get together and they create a six-page black and white bulletin called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists of Chicago to engage the public. The politics as we know it has changed and we must all get involved. And so um, they come together and write that. But just to add to this, it was an incredible fertile time here in Chicago. So even just at the university, you had not only these world renowned scientists, but you had Hans Morgenthau, who was a globally recognized political scientist. You had Edward Levy, a world-class international lawyer. President Hutchins was running the university, was very concerned about the ramifications of the science that was advanced here at the university. And so it was a very dynamic time. And they each complemented each other. And the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was then, they had the benefit of Eugene Rabinowitch, who becomes the first editor who's here, and he's a Russian emigre who is a beautiful writer and a scientist himself, and he's able to translate what they're working on into prose that really captivate the public imagination.
0: So the bulletin started out as a physical publication that was then sent out where? To subscribers, to other scientists, to politicians? Where did it go? Yes,
1: to all of the above. They were very focused on Washington, and so they sent it to Washington to policymakers, but they had strong connections internationally. They sent it to their friends internationally, but the real focus was here on the United States because it was the United States that had the bomb. And so they sent it through their networks, and it very quickly became a subscription. And so within two years, they realized this bulletin, which was, again, just black and white, type faced stapled together. I'm looking right now at the first page of the first copy. By 1947, they decide it's time to turn it into a magazine, something a little weightier to respond to the demand. And in turning it into a magazine, they needed a cover. And the first cover of the first journal was the Doomsday Clock. So by 1947, the first magazine comes out and the cover is the Doomsday Clock.
0: Now, was the doomsday clock invented or conceived or the image created just for the cover? Or did it pre-exist being put on the cover? I'm wondering who came up with that thought and how did it get implemented?
1: Yeah, great question. So one of the scientists, Alexander Langsdorff, who was a physicist here, his wife was Martil Langsdorff, who was a well-known oil landscape painter. And he turned to her to create the first cover because they had no money. You know, this was just a bootstrap operation. And so she, as an artist, began contemplating what could she put as a cover that they could recreate easily, but conveyed the urgency and the seriousness of purpose that she knew her husband and her friends felt, that she herself felt about this science and, and these weapons. And so she had considered a sign of uranium. She had considered some other things. But she came up with this idea of the clock because of um, the urgency it conveyed, the fact that it was ticking, the fact that it required action. And this was also during a time, you know, it was just after the war with countdowns and, you know, 1098 and all of that, that really kind of spoke to people. And so there's an interview with her where someone asked... Why did you set it where you did? Because the first cover, it was set at seven minutes to midnight. And she, somewhat off the cuff, says, Well, you know, it was pleasing to my eye. In other interviews I've seen, she talks about the fact that it was pleasing to her eye, but it also, because it conveyed an urgency, it was far enough away from midnight that we still had a chance to intervene, but close enough that it really demanded our attention. So it was created for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists for its journal.
0: Once that image was out in the world, what was the response with it and how was the decision made or how quickly was the decision made to make this at minimum a yearly icon to revisit and perhaps reset?
1: Yeah, so it was set at seven minutes to midnight or it was put at seven minutes to midnight and and there it, it stayed. And then in 1949, two years later, as a result of the Russians testing their own atomic bomb, the editor of the bulletin, Gene Rabinowicz, moved the clock. And suddenly by 1949, you had a static graphic representation become dynamic. And by 1953, it moved to two minutes to midnight, which is the closest it's ever been to midnight until now. He moved it in 1953 as a result of the Americans, then also the Russians, testing hydrogen bombs. The Americans do it in 1952, the Russians do it in 1953. And in response to both of those tests, he moves it to two minutes to midnight. And the clock has moved since. It's moved as close to two minutes to midnight and as far away as 17 minutes to midnight. So it had been left to the editor to do, and it was kind of his decision. And he was the one who moved it. When he passed away, the board, the science and security board took it over and then they moved it. And again, you can see on our website, we have the full list of how it's moved and they would meet regularly. I don't know when it started to become yearly. I don't know if it's always been yearly, but it's been certainly yearly recently, but they would meet and they would discuss and they would set the time.
0: What are some of the criteria that are used for determining, okay, it's closer, okay, we can move it away?
1: There's a few things that are worth talking about it. First of all, what issues do we focus on? And then how do we set it? And so what are the issues? Let me start with where they started. It had always been moved as a result of the nuclear landscape. So it was created out of a fear of Nuclear weapons and their use, but even at the founding of the Bulletin, the editor Gene Rabinowicz, when asked what's the purpose of the Bulletin, he gives two re- two goals. The first is to eliminate nuclear weapons, and the second is to manage Pandora's box of modern science. And I just find that managing Pandora's box of modern science so fascinating because of the use of modern in the sense that they understood, the scientists of the time, that the science that they knew uh, was changing and changing fast. And it was going to cause, we had to rethink so many things. And so Einstein has this beautiful quote, and I'll butcher it, so I'm pa- paraphrasing it badly, but it's that you know everything has changed except the way we think. And so they knew that science is going to demand, the scientific advancement was going to demand really kind of new thoughts. So Pandora's box of modern science. And if you look in the early days of the bulletin, its journals, there's a lot of focus on nuclear weapons, of course, but there's also early discussions of climate change and uh, what does it mean. We had a, It's just quite interesting, a cover story in the 70s where the Bulletin's editors take a stand that man is indeed responsible for the change in climate. There's things in there about how the mind works, um, population growth because of technological advancements. And it's a fascinating tour through kind of science and policy and where they come together um, in our archives. But the clock had been set, and again, it's on, on the website with a real focus on breakthroughs as well as obstacles in reducing nuclear risk in 2009 climate change is added to it and it becomes probably one of the most controversial decisions that the board takes to start including things other than nuclear weapons and it's controversial for probably pretty obvious reasons which is you know different time horizons and different issues at stake and how can you put them all into the same calculation. And so the challenge that the board was focused on is what is this clock about? Is it about nuclear risk or is it about two questions that we ask ourselves every time we meet? Is humanity safer or at greater risk this year than it was last year? And is humanity safer or at greater risk today compared to the other times that we've asked that question? And you can't answer those questions unless you include climate change, the board felt, as well as other disruptive technologies. And so in 2009, uh, the board includes climate change for the first time.
0: We are now at two minutes to midnight, down from two and a half minutes last year. What was the motivation for moving it that much closer to the midnight of annihilation? It's been quite
1: fascinating to look at how the clock's been moving. And when I look back in the recent years, to best understand the current move, I think the the most significant jump recently was in 2015 when we moved from five to three minutes to midnight. And so if I can start there, it'll help make sense of why we moved it, why we're at two minutes now. In 2015, and all these statements are on the website, in 2015, the board made a very big move, and they moved it two minutes, which itself is the big move, but it's also a big move given how close to midnight the clock stood at five, so from five to three. And why'd they do that? They called out three issues that continue to vex us all today. And it's actually quite relevant when you have um, Vladimir Putin today saying that some of his reactions and the creation of new weapons as a result of actions taken, and he points back to 2001. So a lot of this is seeds that have been planted over the last decade plus. But in 2015, we moved it from five to three for a number of reasons, but we highlighted three in particular. The first was a real deterioration in U.S.-Russian relations. The United States and the Russians maintain more than 90% of the world's nuclear arsenal. And so when relations between the two of them are not good, it makes us, the whole world, less safe. And so the board was very concerned about the deterioration in the relations the violations that they saw, certainly on the Russian side, but also the US side, and their concern about the increasing lack of back channels and possible ways to have serious negotiations. The second thing that they highlighted was huge investments that were being allocated towards nuclear weapons that appeared to be not just ensuring the efficiency or the safety and reliability of the weapons, but seem to be creating new kinds of weapons and in fact making them more usable. And so if you look across the globe at countries like India and Pakistan in particular, Pakistan has the globe's fastest growing nuclear arsenal. If you look at the kinds of investments the Chinese are making, how they're outfitting their subs, their submarines, and what they're investing in terms of their own capacity, it was quite worrisome. If you looked at the United States, for President Obama to get through the New START Treaty in 2010, uh, he had to promise Congress to make a huge investment, the equivalent of $1.2 trillion in not only what our board thought was kind of, again, ensuring that they're safe and reliable. Well, we all know some investments have to go there, but really in making a new kinds of investments. And so there was a great concern about where that was taking us. And the final thing in that 2015 statement that they called out and very loudly was the fact that there was no global institution or forum or set of agreements to do anything to reduce climate change. And that our climate scientists on our board were saying that we had to do things now to reduce the amount of carbon being put into our atmosphere. Otherwise, it would be too late in the future. And we weren't seeing a global response to this global problem. And that's the background in many ways to where we find ourselves today. In 2016, the board came back together and they kept the time at three minutes to midnight with a report called, It is Still Three Minutes to Midnight. And they still referenced the things that we had talked about the year before, but they pointed to two bright spots that they thought had the potential to move the clock away from midnight. They highlighted the Iran deal, the JCPOA, Joint Comprehension Plan of Action, which uh, our board and scientists felt very strongly was a deal that would, in fact, help reduce the nuclear threat and paris climate accords were coming we could see them we had outlines of what would be agreed to more needed to be done but the board did feel that paris had the potential to provide a for a global forum to put restrictions in place that would help slow the introduction of carbon into the atmosphere and so in 2016 it was at 3 minutes to midnight in 2017 the board i think was eager to come back together and thinking that they might move the clock hands back because of those two factors. But of course, 2016 leading up to the 17th setting was very different. And that's when we moved it from three to two and a half minutes to midnight. At that point, we had just gone through an election where the president-elect at points didn't seem to know what the nuclear triad was, as importantly, was making Very troubling statements such as, well, if they, meaning the Russians, want an arms race, we'll give them an arms race, and about our allies, Japan and South Korea, you know, maybe they should, uh, we should encourage them to buy their own nuclear weapons, and on and on. And so we were very concerned with that. We were very concerned with what we saw as reckless language around the use of nuclear weapons, both in the United States and elsewhere. In December of 2016, the Pakistani foreign minister or defense minister, I can't remember which one, issued a threat, uh, a nuclear threat against the Israelis in a response to a fake news story he saw on Twitter. So very reckless language being used and a real disparagement of expertise globally. So in the United States, we are very concerned of things the president-elect had been saying about climate science, but in the rest of the world, the board has focused on things like Brexit, where expertise was being denounced, where it was much needed. And so our 2017 statement really focused on a disregard for science and a recklessness around language, around nuclear diplomacy that we felt was very dangerous. We moved it a half a minute And then this past year, we kind of finished the minute and moved it to two minutes to midnight as a result of real advancements that the North Koreans were making in terms of their missile programs, both their range and capabilities, all the same things that we were seeing in 2015 were being accelerated. And we also made the statement that we moved it largely for reasons of the nuclear landscape, whereas in other years, we had kind of spent As much time on climate thinking about emerging technologies as well as the nuclear landscape.
0: It's so much information and so much debate and examination of facts that goes into this very elegantly designed symbol that we don't necessarily have to know every jot and tittle of what you go through to come there but the image itself is so powerful and represents so much thought How influential do you feel the Doomsday Clock announcement has been, beyond the fact that it always piques the interest of the media? Do you think it does anything to coalesce thinking either in governments or in influential individuals?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that it's influential, first of all, across the globe, but then also among decision makers. You know, what I can share with you is this past year, we know it was certainly here in the United States, it was covered by the media and every major media outlet. We know 275,000 people came within a couple of weeks to read the statement, half from the United States, half from outside the United States. We know anecdotally, um, the South Korean consul general came to see me because he was told to come see me, to kind of talk about the statement, to fully understand it. From friends in Australia, they saw it everywhere. So the global reach of the clock is pretty significant. Now you're asking something a little different. Who does it influence and how does it influence? I'll tell you what I find most important and gratifying is not the policymakers, and I'll get to them in a second because they're watching this too, but the public. These issues that we focus on existential threat, are really hard to talk about. And they feel really technical and really big and really unsolvable. And it's hard to know sitting around a dinner conversation how to talk about them. And yet, when the time of the doomsday clock is announced, it stops the news cycle. And it gives people entree into the conversation of did you see that they said it at two minutes to midnight? You know, I assume it's prompting conversations. We see some of it of, I think it should be closer. I think it should be farther away. I think that it shouldn't just be about nuclear risk and climate change. It should also include these other things. I think it should only include nuclear risk. It gives entree into a set of conversations that seem daunting and impossible to access. So that's the part that I find most breathtaking every time it's announced. You know, we see it from popular culture all the way up through policy circles. So you asked about policy circles. In the United States, we'll get calls from congressmen we haven't met before or others say, I'm very interested in these issues, come talk to us. That happened this year. We've seen at the United Nations, the clock is an easy but effective way to organize disarmament conferences. We saw just recently in Munich, it's, it referenced that we have to do something. The doomsday clock is at two minutes to midnight. And so it's a way of sharing in a sense of urgency without sounding, quite frankly, hysterical that it is urgent, it is dangerous, and Who's ever talking about it at the time agrees with it and look, the bulletin had set it at two minutes to midnight and 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 what I find most interesting is the general public and the artists. So we know it comes into pop songs, we know it's organizes television shows, and it just again gives people the ability to engage on these tough topics.
0: It really is a brilliant symbol but it's not the only thing that the bulletin is involved in tell us about some of the other programs and initiatives that you're putting forward
1: yeah thank you you know i'd really uh, hope that some of those listening come check out our website at thebulletin.org we are constantly publishing some of the best works on nuclear risk, climate change, and disruptive technologies. We think a lot about new technologies, artificial intelligence and CRISPR and cybersecurity. We think about pandemics. What are the things and what are the questions we should be asking? So right now, for example, I find artificial intelligence probably the most fascinating. And all of this is built on the sense that remember we're created by scientists and we have many within our leadership are writing for us. So these are people who really believe in the advancement of science and that it's going to do great things and it's going to pull people out of poverty and it will increase our quality of life and we know that we all have so much to benefit from but it comes with risks and if we can address the risks now we will actually be able to leverage the benefits but if we can't we're going to get stuck. So I think the best example of what I'm talking about is in the nuclear landscape. Then I want to come back to artificial intelligence, but nuclear power, nuclear energy. In the United States, 20% of our energy comes from nuclear power. I'm here in Illinois. It's even a slightly higher percentage than that. So we know that in a carbon-constrained environment that we live in, any sort of energy that doesn't emit you know that is that doesn't emit that doesn't uh, that isn't a fossil fuel is we should be trying to figure out how to accelerate and enhance and nuclear power is one of the cleanest is the cleanest source of baseload power available.
0: Well, that's um, the, that of course is ignoring the fact that it creates nuclear waste that has a half life of twenty four thousand years.
1: That's right, right, right. So, um, and that's exactly my point. So we know in a carbon constrained environment, um, nuclear power should be something that we should embrace. However, we haven't been able to manage its risks. And what are those risks? One is proliferation and how do you protect it? Um, And the other, and I think probably the most important, is the one you just, and the second one is safety. Of course, we've all just lived through uh, Fukushima. And the third one is, what do you do with the waste? Your point exactly. Um, And so we haven't managed the risks of nuclear power, which means there is very limited appetite in uh, the United States and Europe in moving forward with nuclear power. If we were able to figure out how to do that, um, we would have a clean source of energy. And so if you can't manage the risks, you also often can't um, accrue the benefits. And so those are the kinds of issues that we care about. So how does this fit to artificial intelligence where I started? Artificial intelligence, if it's about driverless cars, we think that's kind of cool and interesting, but it's really not our topic. The question is, do humans end up losing the narrative in a hundred years where machines are making decisions that humans used to, and we think as the core of humans, what does that mean for our safety and security? Then we start getting really interested in it. We start grappling with if artificial intelligence is going to result in the loss of millions of jobs worldwide to lead to massive instability, that's probably an issue that we want to start thinking about now. And how do we manage a future like that that's coming? How serious do we think it is? And Many of our scientists on our board thinks it's pretty likely. So how do we frame the questions? What part of which technologies do we care about? One scientist and a politician who we've been talking to, what happens with CRISPR if in other countries they start genetically engineering people who don't need to sleep? Is that possible? What does that mean in terms of civilization's advancement? How do we think about that? What is the likelihood Is there any, you know, what are the kind of ethical questions might that raise? What if others don't pay attention to those ethics? Those are the kinds of questions that we do think about and work on and publish on our website. You know, we do things like hold conferences. We just had a conference at Arizona State University where we were looking at artificial intelligence on the battlefield and what it meant. And we had people who were from deep within industry who were raising concerns. So those are the kinds of conversations we like to generate. Those are then kinds of articles we like to publish and give talks on and engage others who are working on it.
0: I don't think I had ever been to your website before I was doing my research for this interview. And I found the depth and complexity of the articles there to be refreshing because they weren't based in hysteria. They were based in science and they seemed very well reasoned whether I agreed with them or not. That level of discourse is rare. A core thought that I want to get to A few weeks ago on Nuclear Hot Seat 349, I interviewed Sean Bonner of SafeCast, which is a nonprofit that helps citizen scientists around the world to build their own radiation monitors. And then their data feeds directly into a free database that SafeCast makes available to everyone. And he was very clear about the point that SafeCast was neither pro-nuclear nor anti-nuclear. It was pro-data. Using that as kind of a guiding paradigm, what would you say about the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, pro, anti, or somewhere else? Well, I think
1: we're absolutely based, we're built on evidence-based reasoning and arguments. And so for us, it's about evidence and often that correlates with data. And so I think for us, what we like to think about, what the Bulletin is really about is where does science and policy come together? It's interesting because often we're critiqued as being almost alarmist right, about the science and danger, 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 and threats, threats, threats. And that's why I started where I did in some ways, which is we're created by scientists who were part and parcel of the advancement of science, who had devoted their life to science. But they also saw the fact that that science unrestrained can lead to terrible outcomes. They had all remember seen World War II and where science advancements, whether it was in the nuclear bombs or whether it was in gas chambers, could bring huge destruction, terrible suffering. They understood that. And so that's why they were trying to figure out how to engage the public to help build better policies to keep us safe. In the nuclear realm, it was how to engage the Russians and others. Was it debates on should we give them our technology? Should we be transparent? Should we not? They were very much for sharing of technology. It was their belief that science diffuses and that trying to keep it within the confines of a nation was parochial, and it would only lead to suspicion, and it would only lead to arms races. The politicians often felt the opposite. Why would you possibly let your adversaries see your technologies? And so for us, it's really about what we get really interested in is where is the science going and what policy should we put in place to keep us safe? So it's not data or pro data. Bulletin of atomic scientists, they work in data. We work in data. We publish on it. But it's evidence-based, and it's really about that intersection of public policy and scientific advancement.
0: What do you say to people who accuse the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists as being a bunch of fear mongers?
1: Well, I certainly hear that, and I think it's a fair question. First of all, if we didn't believe it was as dangerous as it was, then that accusation would be out there. But for years, the Bulletin has been saying it has been getting dangerous, more and more dangerous. And I think the public is kind of catching up to that now. And so now when we move the clock, We hear as often as, why didn't you move it closer than, why didn't you move it further away? But what I think about in all this is the bulletin's job at this moment, especially when people are rightfully worried about the state of things, is twofold, which is we provide a place where people can see and read through some of the best thinking on these issues. And so it's not like nobody's thinking about these issues, and it's not like there aren't ideas out there on how to make it better and so we feel that we're doing something very useful during these times to provide that respite for people to come and see what's happening and see what people are thinking about and come up with ways to get engaged and then the second on this is if they can do that they themselves will be smarter activists and that is going to be what's going to keep us safe is politicians respond to public pressure And that is true all over the world. And so if public is not engaged, then there's very little incentive to make hard decisions. And some of those hard decisions right now are to try to find a way back to the negotiating tables between the Russians and the Americans to figure out how diplomatically elsewhere in the world, we, the US and the North Koreans and the Chinese are going to figure out the Korean Peninsula security situation. And so we need an engaged public because it's only that that's going to keep policymakers' feet to the fire to try to push those hands of the doomsday clock away from midnight.
0: The work that you and the Bulletin are doing is, I think, crucial to us understanding the nature of the issues, no matter what our bias happens to be. And you've done a great job explaining that today. My mind is exploding now on a couple of levels of things that I didn't know. And I want to thank you, Rachel Bronson, for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. That was Rachel Bronson, president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. If you want to receive their newsletter, and I suggest that you do, go to their website, thebulletin.org. A pop-up when you get to the site will allow you to sign up for weekly bulletins from The Bulletin. One more thing. In a brief follow-up to my interview with Rachel Bronson, I spoke with Dave Kraft, executive director of the Nuclear Energy Information Service, NEIS, in Chicago, to check on the energy generation figures that were cited of 20% nuclear generation of energy for the country and for Illinois. Dave said... My recollection is 18 to 20% annual nuclear contribution for national energy generation. That percentage is either flat or declining, with no foreseeable growth until and if the Vogel 3 and 4 units come online, while the percentage of national energy generated by genuine renewables is constantly increasing. For Illinois, it's tricky. While, in a given year, nuclear generation represents about 45% of the electricity generated within Illinois, a portion of that is exported out of state and not available for use here. We can't say for sure that 20% is a uniform amount because it has to be factored in with all energy sources that are exported, and this includes nuclear, coal, gas, and hydro. One thing we do know with certainty about that exportable electricity from nuclear is simply this. Exelon gets 100% of those profits, and Illinois residents get 100% of the waste and risks from nuclear. So says Dave Kraft, executive director of NEIS, based in Chicago. Activist shout-out! Activists old and new from North St. Louis, over 1,000 strong, showed up at a community meeting with EPA last week to stand with the Just Moms and demand a full cleanup of the Westlake Landfill's World War II nuclear weapons waste, which has so poisoned their local community. At last count, an additional 9,000 people watched the live stream. Great showing, great strength, keep growing. If you would like more information on the Just Moms group, go to their Facebook site, Just Moms STL. Simply Info has issued their 2018 Fukushima 7th Anniversary Report. Once again, it's a model of clarity and concision as to what the technical latest is at the site of the triple reactor meltdown. And do not fret if you do not understand technical stuff. They really do translate it so that normal people can understand. You can get a copy by going to simplyinfo.org. And an accountability check-in about my upcoming book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm finishing up the final chapter now and have every intention, putting it out there, that I will publish it in May. That's May of 2018. If you would like to read a sample chapter... There's one about me on the ground at Three Mile Island. That's where I heard the warning loudspeaker come down the road in front of the house and, well, let's just say it was intense. You can get that chapter by going to nuclearhotseat.com and then look for the big yellow opt-in box, put in your first name and email address, and it will be sent to you automatically. That will also put you in the queue to get one email a week that contains a link to the current show and a little bit of explanation on it. And when the big book launch does come, you'll be among the first to know. Here's today's final thought. Nuclear annihilation comes in all sizes, from enormous fireballs of destruction to the quiet, invisible rot of radiation. It is one of the toughest subjects to wrap one's head around because it's so huge, so ultimate, and at the same time, for the most part, so invisible. That's why it's often the small human stories that reveal the enormity of what we face from nuclear. Two instances from the past week. In the mere sprinkling of coverage of nuclear issues sparked in the mainstream media by the Fukushima 7th anniversary, The story of Mitsugi Moriguchi, the Hibakusha who survived the Nagasaki atom bomb, and his visit to the birthplace of that ultimate destruction, the Hanford site, struck me as poignant and an almost poetic gesture. Like a Holocaust survivor visiting Auschwitz, he faced the source of so much personally experienced misery, remarked upon our obliviousness as a people to the pain inflicted, and then asked, Do you understand my heart? I was also privileged to attend a screening of the film Nuclear Cattle, an award winner at this year's International Uranium Film Festival. This documentary tells the story of the cattle farmers of Fukushima Prefecture who refused to abandon their cattle or allow them to be culled, meaning killed off by the government, even though their radiation contamination makes them commercially worthless the pain of these men and women as they watch their ancestral way of life dying off forever, knowing that their government just wants to kill and literally bury the evidence. They do not say the words, but you can see it in their eyes. Do you understand my heart? As we launch into Fukushima year eight, with the doomsday clock at two minutes to midnight, and all our Cold War fears kicked up again to infest a new generation with terrors. One does what one can to fight back. The odds are enormous. The rewards may seem small, but each is precious. At that screening of nuclear cattle, I sat next to esteemed veteran activist Harvey Wasserman as he watched what revealed itself on the screen and quietly cried. I saw activists from India and Japan and California embrace, united around the world in a fight against what hurts us all. I felt deep community with those intelligent, compassionate, fierce fighters who also know how to laugh and have a really good time with each other. Because in the end, isn't that what life is all about? Isn't that what we're fighting for? In that room, with those people, there was hope. And if I asked them, do you understand my heart? I knew they would. They did. Do you? This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 13, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, dianuke.org, beyondnuclear, counterpunch.org, Cape Cod Times and Christine Legere, tricityherald.com, and the ongoing Hanford coverage of Annette Carey, including today's moving account of Hibaksha Mitsugi Moriguchi, Tom Carpenter of Hartford Challenge, Dave Kraft of NEIS.org, propublica.org, pbs.org, nukeresistor.org, straightstimes.com, thinkprogress.org, bloomberg.com, japantimes.co.jp, newsandguts.org, thank you, Dan, rather, fortune.com, uk.reuters.com, theguardian.com, friends of the earth Australia, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, with thanks again to Erica Gray for her translation skills, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, 123 countries on six continents and counting, plus everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations in the U.S. You are the ones who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness that you are. Thanks so much for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat blog page and the Nuclear Hot Seat podcast page. Yes, there are two. If you haven't yet, be sure to stop by, click like, Click follow, post, and share. And you can find all of our back episodes, all 350 of them, at NuclearHotSeat.com. We have a new feature that allows us to search about 10 episodes at a time if you put in NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2018, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, Take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really appreciate your support. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that, as Hiroshima Hibakusha Setsuko Thurlow set upon accepting the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, The nuclear arsenal represents a self-destruct button for the human race. There, you have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.